0: So
1: one of the things that has terrified me about Trump from the beginning, and I've written about this in several different places, has been these allusions to violence in his speeches. And some of them are in the speeches written for him by other people, but some of them have come in his spontaneous remarks that he makes. You know, the idea that we need violence, that we need some kind of cleansing violence. I mean, Steve Bannon sometimes goes in this direction too that our generation has become weak and we need to fight for freedom or something, you know, something like this again. I mean, this is appeal to violence. I really do think that Trump has set the atmosphere in which he makes all of it possible.
2: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Staslow. Nearly two years ago, at the height of the 2020 presidential election, I spoke with Ann Applebaum about what it looks like when democracies descend toward authoritarianism and about the urgent lessons and warnings in her book, Twilight of Democracy. But even after our victory in the 2020 election over Trump, the state of democracy around the globe may be worse off today than it was two years ago. From the coordinated effort to subvert that election from the West Wing, to Putin's invasion of Ukraine, to Republicans inviting the prime minister of Hungary to speak at CPAC this week. One way we need to understand the macro threat to democracy here in the U.S. and around the globe is as a growing network of authoritarian figures, organizations, and regimes. And with that thought as a backdrop, I plan to invite Anne back on the show soon, but before we do, I wanted to share this conversation with you again. As many of you know, Anne is one of my favorite thinkers on this topic. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and a staff writer for The Atlantic. She's also a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins School for Advanced International Studies. Anne, thank you so much for making the time to be here. Welcome to Politicology.
0: I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much.
2: why don't we start with the why for this book? Because it feels somewhat personal and as part memoir, part history, you talk about some of your conservative contemporaries changing considerably from the people you thought they were. That is changing their politics. Could you start by offering a bit of your background for folks who may not be familiar uh, with your story as a conservative thinker and writer? And then what led you to ultimately write this book?
1: It's true. I have an I have an odd background. Um, I'm American. I grew up in Washington, D.C. Um, But after I graduated from college, I moved to Europe first to study um, and then to become a originally freelance and then later full time journalist based in Poland. Uh, And I was in Poland in 1988 and 1989 when communism fell. Um, I was in, in Berlin when the wall fell I traveled all around the region during the early 90s and watched the transition from communism to democracy um, and at the time I would have described myself as a conservative writer i certainly I was an anti-communist certainly I was happy with the changes that were taking place in eastern Europe um, i you know my I, I felt an affiliation with I don't know, Reaganites in America and Thatcherites in Britain and the anti-communist um, dissident movement in Poland, which came to power in those in those early years, and some of whose younger members were my friends or my friends and colleagues. Um, and I've spent most of the last 30 years actually in Poland, some of the time in England, some of the time back in the U.S., but really traveling back and forth between Eastern Europe and, and and Western Europe and the United States. Um, I have a house in Poland. Um, my husband is Polish. Maybe that's an important part of the story. He was a Polish politician. He was foreign minister of Poland. Um, but nevertheless, somehow I managed to keep writing for American <laughs> newspapers and magazines for a long time. I wrote for the Washington Post. I was on their editorial board, and then I wrote a column for them for many years. Um, and as I say, during much of that time, I saw myself somehow somewhere in the, I don't know, the Tory party in Britain and the Republican party, maybe the McCain wing Mm -hmm. in the U S and very happy to be part of the, you know, Polish pro-democracy movement. Um, A couple of years ago, I began to reflect back on the past couple of decades. And one of the things I fixated on, and this is what I start the book with Mm -hmm. was a party that I had at my house in 1999 The Millennium Party, and this, of course, I'm not a great party giver. I'm not like a fantastic hostess. You know, it's not a book about parties. It is a fun. It is a
2: fun intro, though. (laughs)
1: But but, but the party made a really good metaphor because we we have a house in the Polish countryside that we had rebuilt, and for us, you know, we rebuilt the house, we rebuilt the country, Um, and we had friends from Poland, from the U.S., from the U.K. at that party. Remember, it was the Millennium. People wanted to do something exotic, and you know. House in the middle of the nowhere in, you know, you know, Polish snow with somehow people thought that was exotic. So they came. <laughs> um, and my reflection was that there are a lot of people at that party with whom I don't get. A, it's not that I don't get along for personal reasons. I would cross the street to avoid for political reasons. And what what I would witnessed over the last couple of decades in particular was the radicalization of the right um, and I probably saw it most intimately and in close up in Poland, which was a part of the sort of pro-democracy, pro-market, you know, center right in Poland. I saw it become, you know, I you know, I can use the word crazier and crazier. That's not the words that they would use, but sure. the words are um they were they became much more radicalized, much more extreme, and ultimately they turned against the democratic system itself. And then I and and I saw echoes of that in, in other countries. And my book is about, it is really a book about the right in those in in the different countries that I've lived in and among the people that I know. And it poses the question, what happened and how did people become radical and why?
2: That theme of people becoming more radical and then losing friends or losing contact with friends for political reasons is something we've heard a lot about in America, uh, you know, this year, there was a woman who came on the podcast who, who had written into us. She was just a listener, a voter in Texas. Her name is Rita, 72 years old. And she voted for Trump in the first, uh, election in 2016. And, um, because she says she wasn't paying attention and, uh, and now she is she's doing everything she can to help Joe Biden win. And she's, um, you know, her story really, really got to me and got to a lot of other listeners because at her age, her entire social circle has kind of fallen apart for political reasons. And and there's a lot, uh, I think there's a lot in your story that will resonate with, with people who are experiencing the same thing. I want to dig right into uh, authoritarianism and American exceptionalism um because while there really is no single thesis in the book i think um because it's not really that kind of a book is it fair to say that a central theme at least is that authoritarianism has a lure for all of us for for you know on both both ends of the political spectrum is that is that a fair assessment
1: yeah sure. I mean, you know, both the far right and the far left have come up with authoritarian visions of society. But and I would I would even go farther than that. I mean, if you look back through human history, I mean, most societies are organized in an authoritarian way and you know, m- m- most democracies have failed and uh, because people have been attracted to demagogues or they've been attracted to authoritarianism or because democracy seems weak or because it involves a lot of compromises that people don't like or because sometimes it becomes bogged down in process. I mean, we certainly know that story in the US and people become frustrated and they want things to, you know, they want to just push things to make them happen the way they want them to happen. Um, and then And then they begin to break the rules. Um, and this is a pattern that's so old, you know, it's written about in, in, in Greek philosophy. I mean, Aristotle writes about it, you know, and then the, the fall of the Roman Republic is a, you know, similar moment was also written about the America's founding fathers were actually reading those texts when they wrote our constitution. Um, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson at the very ends of their lives were, you know, they, they, were, they fought and then they became friends again, wrote one another letters in their, when they were very old. And the letters were about Cicero, who was the Roman writer who wrote about the end of the Roman Republic. And that's because what they were thinking about was how to build a democracy that would resist this temptation, this lure of authoritarianism, this you know, frustration with the process, desire to make things happen, and also, frankly, desire to cheat. I mean, you know, democracy, if you think about it, requires an just almost inhuman amount of tolerance. So you have to, what democracy means is that. When you win power, you have to preserve a political system that will allow your political enemies to beat you in four years, yeah. you know, in theory. And, that, you know, and, and by the same token, if you lose power, you have to concede and allow your political enemies to rule, you know, as long as they as long as they don't break the rules. But that but that, you know, that that's almost um, it's, it's very, very tempting when you have power. To seek to cheat and to seek to use your access to, to, to state institutions to prevent your opponents from winning, and in a way, that's a kind of it's a sort of lower level. I mean, it's not as grand as the lure of authoritarianism and the appeal of the of the one party state, although that's all yeah. very real. But even just the appeal of cheating mm. in order to stay in power is mm. a very strong one. Yeah. Um, and 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 you know Americans have not been immune to that over history. Maybe we'll discuss. I um, mean, we're we're seeing it on a much bigger scale right now um, in the United States than we have at least at any time you know since since the ni- you know the, the time of the Civil War.
2: Let's dig right into that because you write in the book what really made American patriotism unique both then and later, was the fact that it was never explicitly connected to a single ethnic identity with a single origin in a single space. And then also you write, modern Americans have long been convinced that liberal democracy, once achieved, was impossible to reverse. In other words, like it couldn't happen here. Do you think that American exceptionalism leaves us more naive about the potential of authoritarianism?
1: Those are two separate questions. I mean, you're you're absolutely right that our luck, you know, our huge continent and our great wealth and our great enormous success, frankly, um, over the last 60 years since the Second World War um, and our influence in the world, I think gave Americans a false idea of how permanent our system was, um, and this idea that there's just nothing you could do to undermine it—you know, it's it's it it's 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 so excellent that it, it can't be destroyed. I mean, we even here, and I'm talking to you from Poland. I'm in Warsaw right now. I mean, even here, people had the feeling after 20 years of democracy that that's it. We fixed it. We solved it. We escaped from communism. It's all fine. Um, and all of us forgot, you know, the things that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson knew because they were reading Cicero. Um, we forgot that um, democracies do fail, and they do become weaker, and people are tempted by alternatives. Um, And I think in the US, we, you know, we became very complacent, and we allowed our democracy to become corrupted in some ways, we allowed money to to distort politics. Um, We've, we've, we've allowed, you know, unregulated social media to, to, divide people up into echo chambers and you know worlds where they see false stories and stop speaking to their you know stop being able to talk to each other i mean the we we've, we've allowed kind of the public sphere you know the, the 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 public sphere where we talk and debate to become poisoned by bipartisanship partisanship and all those things have had an effect on on our on our political system um, you know, the other thing you asked was, you know, Amer- you know the, the, the one of the great things about America also, and one of unusual things, and this is partly about American democracy and partly about the nation, is that we were, as you say, we were not a single ethnic group. And, the, you know, for, for many decades, people won elections in America by seeking to appeal to American patriotism and that broad sense of American identity, um, going across social classes, but also across races and across geography and so on. Um, what the what what the Trump administration is proposing is something really different and familiar to me because it's more European. Um, you know this. You know in Europe, you know we call it the far right, or we call it the nationalist right, or we call it, you know, the sort of ethnic nationalism. Um, you know what we're seeing in the U.S. is the emergence of the kind of political party you can find on the far right in Germany or France or Poland or or Spain, which is a party that is that says we are the true nation and we speak for the authentic nation and our political opponents are enemies are traitors or not real Americans. We only, we speak for the real and true America. Um, and the America they're appealing to is a, is a, is an ethnic, um, you know, in, you know, in the case of Trump, a kind of, you know, a vision of some kind of white America that lives in the suburbs and has white picket fences and Cute dogs, I guess, or some <laughs> yeah. vision from yeah. the 1950s right. that they want it that they that they want to bring back. And this, of course, to me is extremely familiar because this is how European nationalists talk. It's not how Americans talk, or at least not in any recent contemporary moment. Um, and that that to me is the other dangerous thing that's happening now. So is one that we were complacent, and two that we now have a political party which is a um, you know white nationalist party, you know, to to to, to use a shorthand, which doesn't want to appeal to the whole country.
2: Yeah. And it's also characterized far more by loyalty to the leader than loyalty to the, you know, any set of principles or ideas and ideas. And actually that reminds me of a story and God, we could go in several different directions here because I do want to talk to you about the importance of civic education and the breakdown of it in, in in society, maybe we can get to that, but that idea of loyalty to the to a person instead of the ideas reminds me of the, I think, famous letter that George Washington received and then wrote back to a, a, a I think it was an officer in the Continental Army right after the battle at Yorktown. When uh, I think one of the officers wrote to him and said, you know, maybe actually America should be a monarchy and you should be the first king, and he writes back to this soldier, excoriating him, basically saying if you if you float this idea to anybody ever again, I will ruin you because he had just finished fighting a war against the very idea of a monarchy. And that to me is an example, actually, it's in Bill Bennett's book, The B- Book of Virtues, filed under loyalty. But the loyalty on display there was not loyalty to a person. It was loyalty to an idea, uh, the idea of America. How did we get from there to here?
1: I mean, there's no one answer to that. Um- But I do think a part of the answer, which I describe in my book, which is that um, people became disillusioned or disappointed with America and with the the real America that they live in. Um, They began wanting something else, something different, Um, whether they were disappointed by demographic change, whether they were disappointed by economic change or or even just the speed of change in general by the... By the by, the pace of of modernity, um, they you know we have a we have a class of thinkers and journalists and 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 politicians and makers of political ideas who who began to feel unhappy with and disappointed with America and in such sharp and profound ways that they began to want to change it really quite radically. Um, the character that I profile in the book, who is you know, is very specific, is Laura Ingram, who's yeah. a Uh, You know, Fox News presenter who I know very slightly. I've known for a long time and who is someone who I think Started out with as a as a patriotic Reaganite and was interested in I mean, I used to talk to her about um, you know, the post communist world and You know the collapse of communism the rise of democracy and she seemed to be interested in that um, years ago Um, and I think she um, is someone who dislikes modern america or is disappointed by it and has and so radically so that she now you know wants to see really extreme forms of change and she's become she's become captured by this really profound radicalism and this you know as you say this weird um cult of personality in which she thinks that you know if she if they, if we if we if we cling to trump and trumpism mm-hmm. we can somehow defeat you know the left which she sees as 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 something um, much more dangerous, um, you know. That's a um, the, you know the, the 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 creation of an idea of the left that includes somehow, you know, Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and and Tifa and right. um, all, in know, <laughs> all in the same bucket. All in the same bucket is is you know I don't see the right that way. I mean, I see a range of views on the right, ranging from you know. You guys, um, you know, or others on the center right, you know, all the way over to um, all the way over to um, the identitarians or, or the far right, um, and I don't think they're all the same. But but one of the tools that the um, you know that the you know the that the, the the new authoritarian part of the Republican Party uses is this kind of you know black and white division of society into us and them and this is by the way this is a classic authoritarian move is to mm. tell people that you know either you're with us or it's chaos mm-hmm. you know you're with us or it's you know crisis if you're not on our side there'll be war you know yeah. violence you yeah. know and really frighten people i mean this is this is what putinism is for example yeah. um you know that putin you know if you watch russian propaganda what 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 the the Russian president puts on TV is pictures of chaos, crisis. You know, this is what happens in in, in Syria. This is what happens in Ukraine. Um, if you don't, just stick with me. And he and the and you know the idea that it's either me or the deluge is a is a very very common authoritarian trope. You know, yeah. that we somehow represent safety. Yeah. And it's a form of it's a form of propaganda that eliminates nuance. It eliminates personality, and it also makes argument impossible.
2: So I want to pivot to a different theme that you talk about in your book, which is moral equivalence, or we can call it whataboutism, or winning is all that matters. I've mentioned in other episodes and other venues that everyone at the Lincoln Project has, of course, taken their own path to this moment and has their own reasons for dedicating themselves right now to our singular mission to defeat Trump. And Trumpism. But for me personally, the subject matter of your book that we're exploring today is what is the most pressing. 2016 was not the beginning for me. It was the end. And it was the Southern strategy when I began to dig into it and, and realize that it was a really cynical electoral calculation. And that actually the, the trajectory of the Republican Party was that winning is all that matters. And so this story that I had told myself for a long time that I could do more good from inside than from outside turned out to be a delusion. (laughs) And you write in your book about a Trump donor who said that she told you he is corrupt, but so she believed were all of the presidents who came before him. We just didn't know about it before. And that idea gave her an upstanding citizen, law-abiding patriot, the license to support a corrupt president. So can you talk about the danger of moral equivalence and what it looks like and and where it leads, I mean, this idea that if everybody is corrupt and always has been, that whatever it takes to win is okay.
1: well, this is another authoritarian tactic, and it's another thing you can see in dictatorships um, again, most most notably in Russia, but you get hints of it in other places too, which is um, the argument you know it's a um, you know a kind of nihilist argument that. Okay, we might be corrupt. Uh, you know, maybe not all the president's tweets are so nice, and maybe we're cutting corners around the edges. But who cares? Because everyone's always been corrupt, and it's always the same. And Washington's a swamp, and nobody's ever been any good, and nobody's ever had any good intentions here. Um, and that way of thinking is also, you know, prof- you know that uh, way of thinking is also prepares people to accept dictatorship because once you start to believe that. Everybody is the same and all sides are equally corrupt and equally bad Then why should you care really who wins and why should you care whether the democratic system survives? Um, This by the way also has another historical echo I mean, this is the kind of language that was used if you look at Germany for example in the 1930s or some other European democracy even France um, in that era a lot of the critics of democracy at that time sounded very similar. So they also said, it's all corrupt. You know that, I mean, Lenin even used to talk about, you know, bourgeois institutions by which he meant parliaments and voting and, you know, oh, it's all just fake, it's not real. It's all, everyone's, you know, it's all, it's all capitalists fighting other capitalists and nobody cares about the people. And this kind of language, whether it was Bolshevik language or far right language, Um, you know, what has always been also very tempting because it's, you know, in a way it's intellectually easier to say, oh, well, I don't care. It's all, you know, it's all, they're all a bunch of, you know, swamp creatures. It's all the same to me. Let it all burn, you know, and that, and that, that is a, that is another one of the roads to authoritarian government because, you know, giving up your, you know, giving up your right to vote or giving up your, um, you know your right to argue you know just conce you know conce you know, ignoring the differences between people throwing everyone in the same category you know this is this is giving up I mean this is saying that you don't care about your country and you don't care who runs it
2: <sighs> um, <laughs> that's uh it's not encouraging um, let me just briefly tell you a story, and then I want like you to act, to react to it because i I want to talk about this this these ideas sort of this mindset trickling down to voters. I was at home, my, my parents are pastors. Um, so I grew up with a lot of, uh, evangelical folks and I was home visiting some, uh, visiting some friends before the pandemic. And one of my, one of my longtime family friends, um, she's about, my parents age in her sixties, college educated, very thoughtful. We have really great conversations, really good dialogue. And we were talking about the Lincoln project and she she didn't understand her husband supports Trump and I asked her very, she, she is very pro life and cares a lot about conservative judges which is something we hear a lot from, uh, from from conservative voters and I said would you be willing to trade the type of government that we have now for example would you would you um, would you be willing to trade our democracy for an autocracy or a theocracy if you got more of what you wanted in terms of this particular issue, and I asked it rhetorically, but her answer was, "I don't know," and that was an alarm bell for me. I never, I, I, I it, it was so obvious a question to me that I didn't expect, um, didn't expect. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what the question is I should ask you about that, but I'd love to hear your reaction to it, and maybe what allows this mindset to trickle down to voters.
1: So that's the. I mean, this. There are others who have voiced this out loud. One or two um, public, you know, one or two journalists and public figures who who said similar things. In other words, that yes, they think it's time to stop all this argument and just impose what we want on the nation. That's what that's what they would prefer to do. I mean, um, I suppose there are two separate questions. As one is how we got there, and the other is what do you think that means for the future. Um, you know, how how, how we got there, um, you know, is a classic thing. I mean, it's frustration with democratic politics. It's frustration with the fact that you live in a big country where not everybody agrees with you. Um, It's frustration with the fact that, you know, other people also have fundamental issues that, you know, that they consider really important and they might not be yours. um, And that one of the you know the absolute basis for democratic society and for you know success of a democracy is that we have to you know we all have to compromise since we have to live together and we have to come up with a form of government that suits all of us. Um and the the positive um you know the positive aspects of that are is that we then create a society which is you know not riven by civil war and isn't undermined by paramilitary groups and um, we can become prosperous and, and, you know, promote our culture and, and spread our ideas all over the world. I mean, there's been a huge benefit to that kind of society. Um, but, you know, you know, many people have, have clearly come to feel that that's not good enough or it's not offering them enough anymore. Um, and so they are they're preparing themselves mentally to undermine it. Um, I mean, what I would say to your friend and what I would say to all people like that is okay, but how are you going to feel if it goes the other way? So in other words, okay, you create a theocracy and autocracy, and you're in charge um, for some period of time. And what happens when I don't know the, you know, your leader is is murdered in a coup d'état, and the, you know, whichever boogeyman you want, you know, and and the far left takes over. And you know, ha- having having ousted the far right in a military coup, and then you have to live under the rule of someone you don't like, you know. Or what if what if the dictator who you like, the sort of, you know, is then succeeded by his incompetent son, you know, who then runs your country into the ground? I mean, or or just your incompetent follower. Look what happened in Venezuela. There were lots of people for whom Hugo Chavez was a great moral leader and figure. Um, You know, he gradually ran the country to the ground and then following him after he and then and created an authoritarian system that destroyed Venezuela's democracy. And following him, they got Maduro, who's a who's an incompetent fool and corrupt and is keeping the country going by um, by through his thanks to his elaborate relationships to drug dealers and, you know, Russian and Iranian, you know, spies. I mean, it's a it's a kind of nightmare Nightmare scenario, and you would have to assume—you know—you you have to assume that your favored dictator could then be replaced by another, and then you would have no influence on on what happens. I mean, so that's so the right answer is: Do you want to remove your influence from politics? Because that's that's in the long term is what happens.
2: Do you do you want to comment on that thread on the role of civic education in America and and the lack of it at this point and the way? A democratic society can deteriorate without sound education in the underpinnings?
1: Yeah, I worry a lot about civic education, Mary. I mean, funny enough, it's a a subject that's been coming up for a long time. I mean, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I was an editorial writer at the Washington Post. And I remember writing about it then um, that there was a, you know, because of the way schools were structured and because of, I don't know whether you know testing, and we need to emphasize reading and writing and math. You know, there was less and less time for so-called social studies and for civic education. Um, I mean, I think the problem is actually deeper than that, in that um, you know the society reads less and less, and people deal less and less with big ideas. And that's partly to do with technology, um, partly to do with um, you know with I don't know the nature of modern life. People don't seem to have the time now to 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 read um and when you don't read you don't you know you don't encounter bigger ideas um, um you know but it you know and there and there are better and worse versions of it there are states and there are school systems where it's still pretty good i, mean, yeah. I have some nieces yeah. who are in a school in suburban maryland and they come home reciting the declaration of independence <laughs> and it makes me feel That's like well, maybe it's going to be all fine you know so <laughs> um so so maybe you know i don't want to i don't want to e- exaggerate but but it's pretty clear from the events of the last few couple few years that there are a lot of pieces of the american system that people aren't familiar with i mean a lot of what held you know what kind of made things tick over in washington and by tick over i mean made it possible to have these transfers of power peacefully back from one party to another was a set of you know, rules and norms about how you behave, some of which were coded into law. Um, some of which weren't. And it turns out a lot of people weren't aware of them. I mean, for example, there is actually a law on the books called the Hatch Act, which says that sitting politicians cannot campaign using their administrative state power. In other words, you're not allowed to, um, you know, if you're a public official, you're not allowed to advertise some private Concern your business. You know you have to you have to keep those things separate. Um, you know we just watched a Republican convention in which the Hatch Act was willingly blown away. Um, so the, there is you know it is absolutely illegal for the president to use the White House for a political campaign. I mean illegal, not just in, you know violating norms, but it's against the law. It's against the law. Um, And, you know, given that people like your friend and people like your colleagues, you know, talk so much about rule of law, you know, and they want to live in a law-abiding society, um, you know, the idea that we just let the president violate the law and let him get away with stuff because he's the president should be, I mean, that should be totally unacceptable. Um, But, and that, that, I think, is partly about education. I mean, it's not just that everybody has to know that there's something called the Hatch Act, but... But everybody should have, it should be deeply ingrained in all Americans that the law applies to everybody, including the president. And the idea of the president, and as you you started with your story about Washington. I mean, this was the, you know, since George Washington, the rule has been that the president abides by the same laws as other Americans, as do all other powerful people. And of course, there have been exceptions to that. But those are, you know, that's wrong. And we fight against that. And we seek to, we seek, that's what, you know, we seek to expose those errors and 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 overcome them but if a large part of the american public no longer cares whether the president is violating the law then we are in trouble
2: how much of the american public not caring about the president violating the law can be attributed to the way information moves now and the messengers that they have access to or that they or that you know that they choose to hear from. You know, on a recent podcast episode last week, Steve Schmidt and Stuart Stevens did a great uh, segment on the Hatch Act. And, you know, Stuart recalled when they were when, when they would film at the White House how they couldn't even ask a staffer to a White House staffer to bring them a Diet Coke. That's how seriously they took it. And so now it seems that there has been zero reaction to this um, within the Republican party, uh, especially in the media that um, no one seems to care now and they know better
1: well yeah i mean this is a this is a that's a slightly different i mean that's partly to do with you know people being unaware but you're right at the very highest levels of the republican party it's about something deeper than not knowing or not being educated i mean the members of the senate who are republicans know american law and they know the legal system and they don't have a problem with civic education i mean that's a Um, And so, when we're talking about them, and even when we're talking about, I don't know, Fox News presenters who are also very educated, you know, uh, you know, and also all went to good universities and know understand our legal system. I mean, then we're talking about something else. I mean, then we're talking about, you know, then you have to begin asking questions about why, you know, why people collaborate. This is something else I've written about recently. I did a cover story for The Atlantic um, a couple of months ago, which was about took some examples from history, but also looked at the present and looked at the question of why people who know better collaborate. Yeah. And yeah. then that's, and then again, you have to go through the range of reasons. I mean, there's opportunism, there's, there's the belief that, you know, they'll, there'll be some better outcome. There's um, there's, there's, there's the sense that, you know, I need to stay close to power, you know, that I am only influential if I can, if I can keep my, um, you know, keep my position. That's a very Um, common,
2: common rationalization, that one in particular. There are a lot of rationalizations.
1: I mean, one of the shocking things for me about Washington, you know, so I've written a lot of books about, um, communist Europe. Um, and one of the shocking things for me in Washington is how often in the last couple of years, I've started to hear people talking like people who live in authoritarian regimes, you know, in, I don't, you know, in, in that they say things like, well, I know that, you know there are problems with the president, but I'm staying here because I think I can do some good despite him, or I think I can protect the American Constitution by staying in my job. And there's little, but that kind of language, like I will, I will help help the system from within, you know, mm-hmm. or I, or people having these kinds of dilemmas whether to keep their jobs or to quit. You know, it reminds me of you know what Poland was like in the 1970s. Very similar kinds of dilemmas that people faced.
2: So let's talk about um, let's talk about as as we're on misinformation, disinformation, state media. This is one of the reasons I have really been looking forward to talking to you. Is a piece that you wrote in the Atlantic uh, in June titled "The Voice of America Will Sound Like Trump," and this is about um, the U.S. Agency for Global Media. Uh, um, the takeover compared to Poland. Uh, I mean, we can talk about it in, in relation to Poland or other authoritarian states in history. But could you could you talk a little bit about what you see as the danger there? And I and I think in your piece you note that it doesn't. It's not obvious at the moment what uh, Steve Bannon's endgame is, and he seems to be the mastermind behind the firing of all of these agencies. And I think maybe just a little bit of background on on the role of these these radio stations. Why why we have them in the first place, and then what seems to be happening now?
1: Right. So there so there are two there are two separate things that your question makes me think about. I mean, one is um, the attitude of the Trump administration towards media, um, and 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 just you know people have had the idea for a long time that we're talking about I don't know fake news, you know, false stories that circulate. What the Trump administration needs to do right now is it needs to create a completely false picture of society. In other words, a false vision of the world. You know, They need to create for Americans you know, a vision of a world in which there is no coronavirus, it's going to go away, in which the economic troubles are temporary or if they exist, they're caused by Democrats, in which the real problem that you face is not the fact that you're about to get chucked out of your apartment because you can't pay the rent. The real problem is the far left and rioters who are going to come and lynch you, you know, and they need to, and this is of course, a fake picture of the United States, but they need to plaster it everywhere. They need to convince you that it's true and they need to stamp down on facts because facts will disrupt that picture and undermine it. Um, And so that's what we're watching. What we watched over the last few weeks is this attempt to create this, you know, so that is, that seems to me to be the, the big story. I mean, the, A piece of that story, which is what you're this article that you're referring to, is there is a the United States control has a has a series of radio stations which most which broadcast abroad. The most famous one is Voice of America, but there's also Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty. There's one that broadcasts into Cuba. There's one that broadcasts in the Middle East. Um, And this is a group of radio stations which has always had. I mean, this is another thing about norms and education have always been um, sort of you know. Apolitical in the sense that you know whether Republicans or Democrats ran them, they were they were um, you know they were about promoting American values abroad and very often just about telling the truth and providing reporting in countries where you can't get any good reporting. And right now, where there are these big riots in Belarus, for example, the Radio for Europe reporters play a really big and important role there um, because they are independent of the regime. Um, and what happened in the last few months was that a a, a kind of Sidekick of Steve Bannon um, was made by the administration um, head of this agency that controls these radios. And he did to them, you know, what people would do in a communist or authoritarian regime when they take charge. He fired everybody, including the Republicans. You know, there were some sort of people with Republican links who were running some of the radios. Um, and, you know, and and fired all the boards, put kind of People on the boards of these institutions who know nothing about radio, nothing about foreign policy, nothing about anything—they're just kind of, you know, flunkies to sit there. And he, you know, seems to be um, seeking to use them um, for some other purpose. I mean, as I wrote in the article, it's too early to say what it is. I mean, but one of the purposes may be to create some kind of alternative, you know, Trumpist vision of America that that is accessible both to foreigners and to Americans, and to create this. False, false vision order. and this, of course, is what whether it's Russia today or whether it's Chinese state television or whether it's I don't know Azerbaijani television. This is what dictators do all the world. They use state media to create this false picture. Now, Trump has been trying to do that, you know, via Fox and via other channels and via via social media. But you know, this this strange takeover of America's you know foreign foreign channels, you know, could be an experiment in, in some deeper direction.
2: Well, it could give him direct control of the narrative where he doesn't have the filter of the, the, the Fox anchors of the reporters. And now we know he likes OAN better than he likes Fox and, and, you know, maybe it's only a matter of time before he gets tired of OAN and, uh, and then, and then, you yeah, know. But the,
1: but the point is that he likes these, you know, stations and journalists insofar as they help him create the distorted and false picture of the world that he needs. And this is, once again, this is another, you know, classic authoritarian tactic, classic. I mean, whether, whether you look at the Communist Party, whether you look at Putin, whether you look at, as I said, China, I mean, one of the things that those kinds of regimes always invest in is state media that will create a fake vision of reality.
2: Yeah. And that that piece got my attention because it speaks to exactly the kind of complacency or the kind of "it can't happen here" mentality. But it, but th- these are the warning signs. It seems
1: the warning signs are all around us. Um, you know the 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 creation of of false reality, the the creation of a kind of cult of personality um the 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 bending of rules so that you know to make it easier you know to win i mean the the hints that the president might undermine the post office so that it will be more difficult for people to vote um the ways in which people in black neighborhoods in some american cities and and in you know in, in the south and elsewhere have had trouble voting because there just aren't enough voting stations i mean all of these are tactics that are designed to Unbalance the sort of even playing field, as I said, to, to wreck this, um, this, this this delicate system that we've created, um, and to give people a, a false sen- sense of false reality.
2: There, there are a lot of people who are stuck in the echo chamber. They're in it, and they are, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to use the word brainwashed, but they. They have a particular worldview reinforced by everything that they read and consume. And is there some breadcrumb that you might offer to those folks that might lead them to a a different reality to to open their eyes a bit? We have a lot of folks write in and ask, What can I share with my family? What can I say to them? Give me some talking points. And we know talking points, especially when they're just about facts, often aren't effective. What might you say to someone who is in that echo chamber?
1: I would remind people. Of their values, you know what are their values, and maybe you know if if they are attracted to, you know if they're conservatives, their values are family, religion, faith, um, you know an an a, an idea, an ideal of America and of America's importance in the world, and I would show them the ways in which Trump is in violation of those things, um, whether it's. Um, you know, whether it's the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, I mean, I don't know, I don't want to descend into trivia, but I mean, sure. whether it's the relationship with porn stars and the, um, and the, and the, you know, the, the, the flagrant abuse of office or whether it's the, um, you know, whether it's the ways in which they've used, you know, they've used the office of the White House to become rich or the ways in which, um, um, you know, the, the ways in which they've sought to undermine America's role in the world. I mean, I, I would point to those things. I mean, um, I mean, I might also, you know what used to, you know, what's often effective in dictatorships is also show people the contrast between what they're watching on TV and what is happening really around them. Mm-hmm. I mean, so okay, on TV you see Antifa marching down the streets and you know they're about to take over. Look out your window. You know, do you see it there? What, you know, what is it that you see really? Yeah. And what it? You know, what are you? What are you encountering? You know, in everyday life, is that really what you're seeing on Fox News? You know, are you? Are, are you know? Are you being frightened by stuff you see on TV, which is often video that's been you know clips from here or there that have been put together to make a to make a narrative? Or are you? What are you seeing in real life? And in real life, um, you know, how do people around you or they, how are they dealing with the coronavirus or with the economic crisis? You know, how is the government helping them? How is the Trump administration helping them? I mean, looking at the contrast between reality and the fiction that's on Fox News, um, that might be a starting But I mean, so those are, those, are, those are two ideas. I mean, how does this administration, how does it, how does it you know, really reflect your values? and also how does it contrast with reality
2: In a moment you're going to hear us talk about the violence that's going on right now in the next segment but for context we were referring to the violence that erupted last summer when a 17-year-old gunman killed two people during protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin As we near the end of our time here I just want to ask you two more questions and one of them is about the violence that we're seeing now. And I want to note the passage in your book where you, you mention uh, Trump's speech in 2017 in Warsaw, where he says, the West was saved with the blood of patriots, that each generation must rise up and play their part in its defense. And you go on to talk about what that phrase, each generation, insinuates about this moment. Can you talk a bit about that and the rhetoric and mindset that lead to the violence we're watching play out right now?
1: So one of the things that has terrified me about Trump from the beginning, and I've written about this in several different places, has been these allusions to violence in his speeches. And some of them are in the speeches written for him by other people, but some of them have come in his spontaneous remarks that he makes. Um, You know, the idea that we need violence, that we need some kind of cleansing violence. I mean, Steve Bannon sometimes goes in this direction, too. Um, you know, that our generation has become weak and we need to fight for freedom or something, you know, something like this again. I mean, this is, this is again, I mean, uh, you know, I hate to keep harking back on it. I mean, this is again, the kind of language the Bolsheviks used to use, you know, this appeal to violence. And, and there is a, there is a, you know, a a part of human nature that does find, you know, that kind of those extreme experiences appealing or, or, or desirable and and you know the, and this idea that you could finally crush your enemies by fighting them or killing them um, um, and that's you know it's just been part of human culture for for forever uh, in fact um, but it is one of the things that we thought that we'd eliminated from American democracy is these appeals to violence um, you know and I you know I really I mean although there is violence coming from different sides right now I mean it is um, I, I really do think that Trump has set the has created the atmosphere in which he makes all of it possible, including the left-wing violence. Um, because again, when people think they're, you know, they're going, you know, when people are afraid they're going to be wiped out, you know, when, when their ideas are going to be eliminated, you know, then um, it, that's the moment when when they begin when they become violent. Um, and when you lose the, you know, that that mushiness of democracy, that compromise, that you know, live and let live, that we all need to live in one society together. When you eliminate that and you replace it with this winner takes all politics, like the politics of your friend, um, then you get the possibility of violence. Because when people think they're they're you know they're going to lose, then they're then they begin. And I, and I think there's a part of the U.S. you know political sphere. I think they're part of the black community certainly that has felt so threatened by Trump being in office that it has been inspired to feel like they're at wit's end. You know, we can't make anything happen. We can't, you know, we're in this extreme moment. And then, of course, there's going to be a response on the far right, which which is similar. And look, I'm really afraid about the next two months. And then I'm even afraid of what happens between November and January, you know, if Trump were to lose. I mean, it's a very, very dangerous moment. You know, we've had the rhetoric of violence and the and appeals to violence and calls for violence creep back into our political system, in in a way that we just haven't had in generations.
2: Yeah, and I I think he also seems to be one of the one of the only re- leaders that I know of in America who's who's been uninterested in de-escalating the violence and actually is interested in it escalating
1: no he he needs it to escalate because if it escalates then then his you know his picture of you know dangerous America that he want the, you know that he wants Americans to be frightened and scared um, then his picture you know grows closer to, to reality so he you know look I mean one of the other amazing events of the last few few weeks was the moment when he sent these strange, camouflage uniformed DHS employees to Portland you know the customs officers and coast guard officers or something um, in a, in, a, in a, you know in a and it, what was strange about it was that every you know book or study or anybody who's ever thought about you know police activity and how you how you police a difficult demonstration or how you take care of political protests, whether it's in Northern Ireland or anywhere else. Everyone knows that the one thing you don't do is send untrained, you know, armed men into a situation like that and tell them to, to stand guard because they'll make mistakes. Um, and that is exactly what they did. And the only reason I could think of why they were doing it was that they wanted more violence. They wanted to provoke more violence so they would be able to film it, so that they would be able to put it on Fox and then use it in their campaign material, which they did.
2: So, and at the end of the book, you offer two paths forward, one that's rosy and one that's not. (laughs) <laughs> and and um, I wonder what you would say to voters right now in terms of what they can do to preserve democracy, how important this election is. What, what would you offer to them?
1: So first I would say vote. Um, and then I would say get all your friends to vote. Um, this is not an election to sit out. This is a really, really important election for America as well as the rest of the world. I'm I'm speaking over here from Europe, from the rest of the world, and I'm telling you, we care a lot over here about who wins. Um, and a and a victory for Trump would be a disaster for us. So, um, uh, you know, so that's the first thing. And the second thing I would say is, you know, democracy. We ha- again, we we talked about complacency. You know, we've had this idea for a long time that it's something that professionals do. You know, people you know, people over there in politics doing stuff, you know, actually the whole point about democracy is that you can do it. You know, all of us can do it. Um, you can, you know, you don't have to join a party if you don't like any of the parties, but you can join a neighborhood committee or you can run for your school board or you can take part in some decision-making at the local level um, where you will encounter other people who also care about how some part of your Community is run. And so I, I would say that, I mean, this is, it's, you know, it's not just about electing Trump or or, or electing um, Joe Biden. They're voting for Trump or Joe Biden. There's also, you know, the, what Americans need to do also is re engage in their country and in the running of their country. Um, uh, you know, if, if we just leave politics to those professionals, um, you know, to those people in suits, then it won't really reflect us and what we think and believe. And so I would just encourage people to get involved in, in civic organizations and community organizations, in political parties, if you can stand them, in campaigns, if you, if you think that's fun, but really in anything that will make sure that you're part of public life and you're part of this great decision-making process that we are lucky enough to still have.
2: I think now more than ever, Anne's call for re-engagement in our public and civic life is incredibly important. The critical work of rebuilding our democracy is just beginning, and we need you in this fight. Anne's book, Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism, is available now, and you can find a link in our episode description. If you enjoy the show, it would really help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow.